Welcome to the Radio 191 FM podcast. The Mayor, Aaron Hawkins, took some time out of his busy schedule to have a chat to Amanda Palmer for us here at Radio 191 FM. And here it is. You're listening to the Otago Museum Breakfast Show. In this uh, most unusual of years, uh, a few months ago, I got the most unusual of emails uh, from Amanda Palmer, who is stranded, you might have heard, uh, in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, the email was in response uh, to a comment I left on a Facebook thread and then immediately forgot, uh, asking her if indeed she was stranded here in New Zealand, maybe uh, she might consider coming and playing in Dunedin, because that's how you lobby artists uh, in 2021. You don't ever anticipate uh, hearing back from them, least of all uh, from them personally. Uh, and not the various uh, levels of middle management uh, that seem to uh, permeate the the entertainment industry. So that was uh, quite remarkable and and connections were made because you can do that in a small town, uh, the likes of which we live in. Uh, And long story short, on Friday uh, here at the Majestic Regent Theatre in Dunedin, uh, we will be hosting uh, an evening with Amanda Palmer. And it's uh, my pleasure uh, to welcome her to the programme. Good morning. Hello, good morning. Kia ora. We like to talk about the tyranny of distance uh, here in New Zealand and that you know, we are a, a small, isolated uh, island nation uh, at the bottom of the South Pacific. And, and that's generally uh, a bad thing when people talk about uh, the tyranny of distance. But in the current uh, global public health situation, it has its advantages uh, in the way that we have been able to, to isolate ourselves um, and, and and so in, in one sense, I guess it's fortunate uh, to be in the Hawke's Bay at this point, but the tyranny of distance obviously works in both directions. Uh, you know, safety comes with you know, a, a sense of helplessness maybe, or a, mm. you know, certainly a, a sense of a detachment from where you otherwise thought you might be at this point in the year and, and close to the people that you thought you might be at this point in the year. and. I'm sure this changes on a daily, if not hourly, basis. But uh, where are you in that emotional roller coaster at the moment? <laughs> that's a that's a very great and complicated question. First of all, thank you for having me, Erin. It's a real. It's. Uh, I mean, I joke about it, um, but it's a. It is honestly just like a privilege to be here. I take less and less and less for granted, especially in the last seven months since landing here. And I'm actually really careful not to say that I'm stranded. Anyone who knows what the rules are right now knows that I am at my leisure and I could have boarded a plane to New York any day of the last seven months easily. And every day I chose not to. I mean, that carries its own kind of weird weight because it's it's not like I am just stuck here in circumstances beyond my control. I have control and I've chosen not to go back to New York. And mostly I've chosen not to go back to New York because I have a now five-year-old child and I know what his life in New York would be like and his life here is arguably infinitely better. The reasons that you make that choice though are outside of your control though, right? Yeah, I mean, let's now we're getting into like philosophy 105 and we can, we could go we could go down the rabbit hole and then like start sounding like tripping teenagers quickly. But honestly, you know, I um 
I was touring here in the middle of March. I was supposed to be in the country for 10 days. I decided to lock down here and I and I convinced my husband to bring the kid over from Melbourne wh- where they were waiting for me. And then we just didn't know, like anyone, like everyone, we didn't know what we didn't know. And I figured our delay to get back home would maybe be a month, then maybe two months. And I remember laughing at the idea that we would be here for Ash's birthday, which was in September, and thinking that we would almost certainly make it home by Christmas. And that's definitely not happening now. And I just find it impossible still to go into a cafe or a restaurant or a bar or take Ash to a birthday party and not just remain permanently aware of what my friends in the States are unable to do with their kids. And I also don't want to be this, you know, this like shadow of darkness in everyone's lives trying to remind them how good we all have it here, especially my ability to go and play a show and you know, sing and spit on stage in front of 500 people. None of my friends are doing that right now. I'm the only one. Singing and spitting on stage. Um, my seats are in row K, and I've never been more thankful. Um, no, you, you'll, you'll get hit. I'll hit you. <laughs> I'll hit you in row K. I'll hit you in row Z, mofo. <laughs> I mean, to, to different degrees and for, for very different reasons, we are both very public people. A lot of your work is, and particularly recently, is very autobiographical. And and I, I wonder if there is a filter and if there is where that line is for you. Oh, what a great question. Well, I have, um, you know, all of us live different lives. We live our life with our family, with our friends. We live our life on social media in our workplace. And for and for each of those areas, we sort of have a different filter. You know, we have a filter when we talk to our parents. I learned, I got a heavy education um, in my late 20s when I started blogging, knowing that, you know, very few people would see this. And of course my, you know, family and my extended family would never find these blogs that I was posting to dressanddolls.com and stuff. I've grown and emotionally evolved on the internet in such a way where I don't a filter. I have like, I have a set of, I have a whole giant motherboard of filters with a bunch of different dials, depending on the, the audience and depending on the situation and the context and, and depending on my needs. And I still screw it up all the time. I mean, when Neil left New Zealand, my, you know, my, Um, instinct was to go to my Patreon and blog out my emotional experience that wound up being a really bad decision that backfired. Um, And, but, you know, both Neil and I are both, we're really public people and we have both said a lot of things on the internet that we regret. We've said a lot of things in, in quote unquote real life within our relationship that we regret. And it's all just a constant learning curve you do have a once you're a public person you do have a kind of an emotional responsibility because you can cause harm and you learn that usually accidentally because you accidentally harm someone or you say something is going to have any repercussions because how could it and it does and you know and and hopefully if you're on the right learning curve 
curve is you don't let that shrink you down, uh, but instead you learn nuance and you learn timing and you learn economy of words and you learn how to not get bitter and shrink down and just, you know, and feel uh, censored. But instead you, you start to feel more connected because you realize the real world, you start realizing the impact your words have, the impact that the stuff you buy has, you know, you just start realizing you're part of a whole and you've got to be careful. And when you mess up, you've got to apologize. It's because the temptation is you just stop doing stuff um, and you just leave Twitter or you just quit politics or you just hide away in your house and don't ever have a relationship again. You know, as we've learned again and again, love is love is pain. You mentioned the Dresden Dolls. You guys were supposed to be touring again uh, in a, in a mm. parallel universe. And I remember 15 years ago living in Melbourne over the summer and coin-operated boy played on the radio at least twice every single day for the entire <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine Sorry. what it's like for you all these years, all these years later. But is it a millstone for you, the band? In what way? It's, it's not a... It's not a going concern in a creative sense now, right? But here you are touring other material, doing entirely different things, and we're still talking about it. Yeah, but not 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 in a bad way. The Dresden Dolls, you know, we toured relentlessly, you know, around the globe seven times over, barely without taking a break for four years, more or less, five years. And then we burned out horrifically and stopped. You know, we we just sort of kept dancing around each other for years while I worked more and more on solo stuff and Brian worked on other bands. And we would reunite every few years and tour, I think just to feel each other out and see if we were ready to really do a full project. And we just haven't been until now. And this year, the year of coronavirus was supposed to be the year of the Dresden Dolls finally working on and recording a new album for the first time in 15 years. It's a very good origin story, though the band has meeting at a Halloween party. Do you remember what you, <laughs> do you remember what you were dressed up as in Halloween? Oh my god, I totally do. So it, even my costume has a good origin story. So I was I would have been twenty four when Brian and I met, and we met. I ha, I lived in a crazy arts collective called the Cloud Club. And I was known for throwing giant art parties. And Brian came with a mutual friend of ours. And a couple years before, when I was about 23 and had like left college, my mom took me on a shopping trip in Boston to a nice department store saying, Amanda, you're a grown up now. You've left university. You're going to need a grown up outfit for job interviews. <laughs> And I was like, but I want to be an artist. And she said, well, you, you never know. You might need to go on a job interview. And she took me to a department store and I bought like a, not a three-piece suit, but like, you know, a nice pencil skirt, a little blazer and a white shirt to go underneath it. And I had that outfit, you know, kicking around my house for like a year. And then finally I realized I was probably never going to wear it. So I rolled it up in a paper bag and took a Sharpie and wrote adult clothes on it and stuck it on the top shelf of my closet. And the day of the Halloween party, I realized like I had thought of everything, but I didn't have a costume. 
So I went to the paper bag and I put it on and my, my cost, and then I did my hair up in a bun and my cost, my Halloween costume was, I was a temp, like a temporary office worker. And that's how I opened the door to Brian. And Brian was a severed head in white face. He was wearing all black and he had done a really great makeup job. And yeah, he was a severed head and I was a temp. <laughs> the rest is history. Because it is well, the morning New Zealand time, but uh, election day in the United States, we can't not mention the war. What does mm. that feel like for you? Both, I mean, in the, in the wider political mm. context, but also from the Hawke's Bay. But yeah. it's removed from being able to, you know, boots on the ground, get involved in that work as you could possibly be. I have been trying to get as involved as I can get by constantly campaigning on the internet, constantly giving money, constantly trying to help within my means. You know, I'm a single mother living alone with my kid in Hawke's Bay on tour. And, you know, and I've, I've sort of grappled with this as I'm sure you have. You know, on any given day, I always feel like I could do more. And I go to bed going, God, I could have done more. I could have tweeted more. I could have shared more. I could have answered those emails. Why am I going to bed? And then I look at my five-year-old and I'm like, you, ha you have to go to bed because you have to be a mother because you need to wake up and make him breakfast. Um, that's also an important political act is to raise this man. <laughs> um, and and I, one of the things I keep trying to be really conscious of is that I, I cannot really fully grasp what my friends in the States are going through. I'm trying really hard not to be cavalier over here. And I'm trying really hard to be quiet and listen to them to figure out what I'm going to need to do if things go badly, or what I'm going to need to do if things go well. You know, there's, a, there's also a real sense of hope. One of the things that's been really delightful in the last week is to read the 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 good writers and thinkers and historians writing about this sense of hope with a larger perspective that even if this election goes to Trump it's a question of when not if because the tide is turning against the establishment and the system that doesn't take care of people. And it really is just a matter of time. And it is like looking at Trump and looking at the political situation in the States, it, it really does just seem like a, like a death rattle of, dis, of, of angry, despairing desire for control to hang on to a system that has just not served people for too long. You may have been here long enough to appreciate this um, or you may not have, but uh, culturally speaking, uh, here in, in New Zealand, we crave external validation. Uh, people are very interested in being uh, affirmed or, or endorsed by people from other parts of, of the world. And so I have to ask uh, <laughs> how you came to include Peter Jeffries on an unknown beach mm. as part of your set list. Oh, well, I came across, so Peter Jeffries is a Kiwi musician who I came across in my college years. 
when I was a college DJ. And his music and his songs spoke to me on a profound level. And um, when I recorded this album, Amanda Palmer Goes Down Under, about 10 years ago, um, I realized I, I had a lot of Australian material. There was a Nick Cave cover. There was a song about Vegemite. There's, you know, um, but but there weren't any covers by Kiwi artists. And Peter Jeffries was the obvious one because he was the one I worshipped. And when I played it the other night in Wellington, I I introduced it by talking about how it, it actually took on a whole new meaning to me in lockdown because um, I spent the week leading up to level four lockdown, you know, which was sort of like the pre-lockdown lockdown in Waimarama, which is just on the coast here near Hastings where I'm living. And I would be out on this sort of lonely, desolate beach. There weren't any tourists. No one was vacationing there. It was just empty. And that that song and it, his poetry and his lyrics are so evocative. And uh, and those lyrics sort of rolled through my head. The song almost sounds like waves rolling and tide coming in and out. And um, and I and I just found even just the radio of the memory of that song in my head playing really comforting, because I could sort of imagine Peter Jeffries in his twenties when he probably wrote and recorded that song just standing alone on a beach and taking mental songwriter notes and going back to his piano. The man alone is a, a fairly pervasive cultural trope in, in New Zealand's colonial creative psyche, you know, this kind of hyper-masculine, uh, sparsely populated, rugged uh, individualism. What's well, not not problematic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. That's going to be my new song on Friday. It's not not problematic. Hey, what do you say? It's not not problematic, but we'll say it anyway. Da, 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 da. Followed up by a long, epic song called The Man Alone. <laughs> In a minor key. <laughs> That's uh, Aaron Hawkins with Amanda Palmer. This was a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. All of our content lives online at r1.co.nz.